You know, we just came back from the Shepherds Conference, uh, John MacArthur's Pastors Conference, and uh, we were so uh, blessed and so enriched. Um, it just seemed fitting for me to just to bring some of that home to you, I guess. Um, my mind and my heart were sort of caught up in what was going on, obviously, as we're just getting bombarded with good pastoral teaching and just great to receive from so many different speakers, but also the fellowship of these pastors was really rich. And um, I was sitting there during one of the sessions, and I was just provoked with within my soul. And so I uh, I took a little notebook and wrote a couple points down. And so that's the sermon for today. So um, I, I just couldn't bring myself to, uh, number one, break away from fellowship and study as I normally do. Uh, and number two, I couldn't bring myself to just ignore the things that uh, were being presented to me and and the things that I was meditating on along with all the other 5,000 men that were there. Uh, but it was just such a wonderful time. And uh, be encouraged. I thought, you know, I should encourage us today as a church. Be encouraged that there are thousands of pastors and thus... They represent congregations. And that's what was really um, sort of sticking out to me as I was walking around the conference. That each one of these pastors represents a congregation. Some of them, many hundreds of people. And I thought, this is so encouraging that just when you feel like Elijah, you hear the Lord tell you, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal and who are faithfully serving Christ and his church. And so we are not alone. I guess that's what I wanted to say. So uh, I was very encouraged by that. But today, I wanted to reflect on the nature of pastoral ministry and uh, the nature of pastoral ministry. So in order to do that, I picked a passage uh, that I've never preached, but that is very near and dear to my heart and a passage that I think, in a sense, summarizes everything. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, I had you sit, and don't hold it against me, I have you stand one more time. Just stand in honor of God's word as we read it publicly together. Um, We're going to be reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 24, down to the end there, verse 29. This is what God's word says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship of God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I may fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which was Hidden, which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man, with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Let's pray together. Well, Father, I feel so unworthy today having just been surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, as it were, being surrounded by men of God who are far more godly than I am. I I am so uh, overwhelmed today with just a sense of my own inadequacy, and I pray, Lord, that you would get that inadequacy out of the way and that you would accomplish your purpose among us today. I thank you that you are a God who uses earthen vessels, clay pots, jars of clay, that you are willing to condescend 
and to put your treasure within earthen vessels like ourselves. And Lord, I am so grateful to the great shepherd of the sheep that as an under-shepherd, as an elder of God's church, that you have so chosen and that you have so purposed and decreed to use me as a vessel to speak your word, to sanctify your people, and to suffer for your sake. I pray, God, that you would make these things clear to us as we study your word now, and that you would apply this richly to our hearts so that we, we can have a, a better comprehensive understanding of what it means to be called to shepherd and what is the nature of the pastoral ministry in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I understand that I'm not preaching to a congregation full of pastors. It'd just be Pastor Lynn and I in here, I guess. I know that you're not a pastor. I know that many of you will never be pastors. I know that many of you are not even qualified or fall into the category of even a possibility to be a pastor. But nevertheless, I thought it was so important for us just to be reminded again of this important office. We just ordained a pastor. We just had a change in our pastoral staff. And it just provokes the whole question of what is pastoral ministry all about? What is faithful pastoral ministry? And and therefore, what can you expect from pastors? And what should you not expect from pastors? I think it kind of runs both ways. I want to point out three things from this passage of Scripture I want to point out, number one, the fact that when a person is called to shepherd, he is called to three things in particular. Number one, he's called to suffer. Number two, he is called to Scripture. And number three, he is called, what we can entitle, to sanctify. To sanctify. Number one, pastoral ministry involves suffering. And you see this in verse 24. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I do my share on behalf of the body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What an amazing passage. First of all, let's just handle the theology of what Paul is saying here. When the Apostle Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, it it sort of takes us back. I think we're kind of made to wonder, how in the world is anything lacking in Christ's afflictions, correct? But what Paul is getting at here is that the body of Christ, the church, has been ordained or has been pre-appointed to a certain degree and a certain amount of suffering. And that that suffering has been preordained by God for His people. Now, we know that the Apostle Paul was himself explicitly called to suffer. Now, one of the things I'll tell you, since I'm not working off of notes today, uh, my manuscript, that I usually have my verses printed out and so I can read them so that you don't hear a lot of this during the sermon, even though I like the sound of that. But you're going to hear the sound of that more today. Acts chapter 9 Turn with me there. Acts chapter 9. You know this passage. This is a text that recalls for us the account of the Apostle Paul, then Saul, then later renamed Paul. But here, Saul is being called by the Lord Jesus as he manifested himself to him on the road to Damascus. He appears to him and he commissions him. So this is uh, Paul really qualifying to be an apostle because you remember that according to Acts chapter 1, an apostle was someone who had had to seen the risen Lord. So here, the apostle Paul is having a direct encounter with the risen Lord. And this is what he tells him. This is not what you're going to hear in most ministry manuals, by the way. A philosophy on pastoral ministry. But it is what Jesus said. You look at verse 9, or excuse me, uh, chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, telling Ananias, go to Saul and go, go seek him out. 
For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. What a daunting calling. How'd you like that, right? Welcome to the pastoral ministry. By the way, you are going to suffer <laughs> from the Gentiles, the kings, from kings, from the sons of Israel, all over the place. You know what this reminds you of? This reminds you of Jeremiah chapter 1. In Jeremiah chapter 1, another man of God, called by God, God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, um, this is the nature of your calling. <laughs> I'm going to send you to the children of Israel, and guess what? The kings, the princes, and the priests, they will all hate you, and they will all persecute you, and they will not listen to you. <laughs> what a great ministry. No one will, no one's going to like you. They will all persecute you. No one will even listen to you. Now, there's one thing a pastor, a prophet, back in those times, wants is he wants people to listen to his message. I mean, that in and of itself is a terrible affliction for ministry. No one will even listen to you. But the Apostle Paul is emblematic here because he is called a chosen instrument. If there's one thing a man of God wants when he enters pastoral ministry is he wants to be used of God. He wants to be God's man. He wants to be the vessel through which divine revelation comes through and to the people. But that involves suffering. Turn with me to 1 Timothy, or rather turn with me to um, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just to see this further, that this is not just for the apostles, this is not just for the prophets, but this is something that continued on, that was propagated after the apostles were going to be gone. This is all part of the type of pastoral ministry that was to be handed down generation to generation. Look at Second Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So you're going to need that grace. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Well, that sounds pretty neat. A lot of teaching, a lot of theology, a lot of, a lot of discipleship. Suffer hardship with me. Look at that invitation to be in the ministry. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. This is just one metaphor of many metaphors that Paul is going to use to describe pastoral ministry. And in this ministry, what he's saying is that as a soldier, you are expendable. You're not that important. You serve a purpose. You're just a clay pot. You know what clay pots were for in the first century? Clay pots were the, 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 the they were the Tupperware of that day. Uh, but even lower than Tupperware. I don't know, Tupperware today is pretty fancy. But they were like the Walmart, you know, 99 cent six pack of Tupperware that you just use one time and then the, micro, the microwave will blow a hole through the plastic or something, right? It's just cheap stuff you don't keep. You don't put it in the china glass, <laughs> Right. And what what the Bible says is that the minister is that earthen vessel. You are that piece of Tupperware. You are that Walmart 99 cent piece of, you know, plastic Tupperware that you just throw away when you're done. Now you want to be in the ministry. I think if there's one thing that I would do over again as a pastor is that I wouldn't rush in so fast. I wouldn't go in so presumptuously thinking I'm ready thinking I'm equipped, thinking I know enough and therefore I'm ready for this. I think I would really take a, a harder look at what was going to be involved, the price that you would pay, the cost that's involved in pastoral ministry. This is very, very important. And if you go back to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, you notice the Apostle Paul uses here very drastic, brutal, almost uh, what is known as rude way of talking. Uh, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Notice what he says, in my flesh, musarkas. When he says, in my flesh, what he's saying is, in my, in my skin. It's, in the first, it's hard in English, but in Greek, it was almost kind of a crude way of talking about your body. It was, it was when someone wanted to get graphic, right? 
so that it was unmistakable that what you're talking about is your actual physical body. This is why John, in his letter, 1 John, this is why John says, whom we have seen, who we have touched, right? The one who came in the flesh, Jesus, right? It's unmistakable that he took upon physicality. So what Paul is saying here is that the, the affliction that you, that you might suffer in the ministry is corporeal. It has to do with your physical body. Just met a pastor at this conference from Africa who some of you may know, but uh, he was involved in handing out the biggest question uh, DVDs out in Uganda. Uh, actually, uh, good friends of Wretched and Trish, the ministry she works for. Uh, he was arrested for doing that in Uganda. He was beaten. He was tied to a tree and left there. Just left there, chained to a tree after being beaten by the authorities. I mean, this is suffering in his body. And this beautiful young pastor, I just looked at him with so much admiration. You know, I thought, man, you know, you're my John MacArthur because of what you've gone through. And uh, just a testimony of what can be entailed in suffering. As a pastor, it's real simple. You must be ready to die. If not, according to John 10, you're a hireling. You care nothing for the sheep. As soon as the, sh- the wolves come, as soon as trouble comes, as soon as the first sign of persecution comes, you flee. Right? You're afraid to get down and dirty with the people. So some of these... And the prosperity preachers, they just get whisked away after the service and put it in their private jet where they can go fly away to the Bahamas. This happens. People give these kinds of shepherds money. And Paul says, no, you've got to be willing to suffer. You're a soldier. You have to be prepared to die. It, it, it's so intimidating, in fact. Turn with me to back to uh, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's so intimidating, in fact, I think, that Paul has to remind Pastor Timothy of something that should perplex us. Look at what he says, verse 8. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Isn't that incredible? This is the Apostle Paul telling a pastor, hey, don't be ashamed to be a Christian. I thought if anybody is not supposed to be ashamed, it's the pastor. But here, Paul needs to remind young Timothy not to be ashamed of it. Not to be ashamed. We can easily be ashamed. Remember Peter? He was ashamed. He was was an important person in the Gospel, right? The Apostle Peter. He crumbled in the presence of a servant girl who questioned him. He denied Christ. He failed this verse. He was ashamed of the testimony of the Lord and he buckled and he denied, even cursed, that he did not and would and was not associated to Jesus Christ. Well, we can spend all day talking about the suffering aspect of pastoral ministry. But I want to alert you to the rest of it. Not only called to suffer, but what I want to entitle just for pedagogical reasons, really called to Scripture. This is a big one. Look at verse 20. Go back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 25, go down to verse 27. Look at what this says. This is remarkable. He says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Watch this now. That I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow, what a mouthful. What a mouthful. What's he saying? First, let's just observe the reality that pastoral ministry means you must be devoted to the Bible. That seems like Duh. 
I was sitting with a group of leaders, uh, many men uh, in Mexico years back when I went to visit Joseph Urban. Uh, most of the men aspired to be a pastor. And I, I was sitting there with another brother and Pastor Joseph and Pastor Aaron. And we're sitting there all night talking among, uh, among ourselves about pastoral ministry. And one of the words that I had, because they were, they were talking about, you know, studying and how much and how, how do you do it and what does it take? And I said, listen, this is something that I learned is that if you are the type of man who tends to get bored or lonely, you're going to have a hard time in the pastoral ministry. Because you know what? On Saturday, it's real nice around here on Saturday, isn't it? Frisco, Dallas, lots of stuff going on. Traffic everywhere. Gee, everybody's trying to go somewhere. It's really, especially on those nice, beautiful days that Texas rarely gives us. Everyone's out and about doing stuff with their kids. There's times where the last place I want to be is sitting in my desk in my office, locked away like some hermit. (laughs) But that's what I have to do, and that's where I have to be. And if you get tired of that really easily, you get bored, and you you get antsy, and you want to get out of there, you're in trouble. Because you should be chained to your desk. John MacArthur says, how do you know when you get, when you're done with your studying? He says, you know, you're done when you're done. Uh, you you keep your you keep your seat in the chair until you're done, and that's that. It doesn't matter what kind of plans you have. It doesn't matter what things you want to do for the day. You are called to be devoted to the Word of God. So much in Scripture uh, about this um, devoted to Scripture. And I'll, I'll come back to this point. But did you notice verse? 25 what he said i was made passive passive voice i was made a minister and there is a perfect example of a divine passive in the greek and the greek grammar what is it saying it's saying that god made me a minister that means you can't make yourself that means that you cannot, I can't make you a minister. That means that no matter how hard we try, we cannot in the flesh produce a minister. You must be made a minister by God. God has either called you, and if He has called you, then this is what He's calling you to. There's a divine uh, a preparation. There's a divine unction. There's a divine origination to this office. Matter of fact, just kind of i don't talk about myself often maybe i do i know you tell me i don't know i try not to but i remember as a young man with this assiduous hunger for the word of god i don't know where it came from because when i first got saved i wasn't a reader i dropped out of high school i I could barely understand what the bible was talking about and then somebody gave me a commentary And then I read that commentary, and for the first time in my life, I was able to interpret a verse of the Bible successfully, without heresy. (laughs) And I thought, that was amazing. I understand what the Bible's saying. And right there and then, I can honestly say, this is about six months into my Christianity, I can honestly say, since that, that kernel of desire and that kernel of wonder never went away. It was like a little flicker, but it only got bigger and bigger as I went on. Matter of fact, I had a couple pastors that they assured me, we don't think this is for you, the whole pastoral thing. It's just not for you. And I would... I would get depressed over that because I thought, okay, fine, if it's that's that's not for me, but the word is for me. And it just never ended. The hunger, just just a ferocious hunger for the word of God. It never ended. Uh, my stepfather's here. You can ask him. Um and 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 I didn't know then, I, I couldn't even tell you back then, but God was making a preacher. That's where it was. And it was a total total devotion to the word of god and 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 i would say all of my pastoral ministry it's an organically connected to that initial hunger that god gave me it never died out never went away and so for some people what that looks like it looks like pastoral ministry 
Some people doesn't. And that's not a slam on anybody. You just don't become a pastor. It doesn't matter. I'm saying is that you have to have a desire. A desire. There's two things. This is a lot of text. 25 down to 27. That's a lot of scripture. Let me just give you two important theological factors that are emerging from this. That in terms of scripture, in terms of theology, in terms of being devoted to the Bible... What is my focus? I would say it's twofold. You ready? At least according to this scripture. Number one, I am to teach biblical theology. Did you catch it? Uh, notice what he's saying here. He's saying, after he said that I am a minister for your benefit, and then look at the phrase here, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Now, I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, the word preaching is in italics. That means the word keruso or paralangeo is not in the text. These are the words for preaching. That means that the NASB is translating that for us or it's interpreting that for us. And so Paul is saying something a little bit more brutal than that. It's more, it's just a little bit more rigid. What he's saying is that, that I might fully the word. Wow. What, what, what is he talking about? That I might fully the word. So then we're left groping for what? It's because, and I understand it as a pastor. I know you don't even have to say it. Don't even finish the sentence, Paul. I know what you're saying. You want to fully minister the word, preach the word, herald the word. You want to fully apply the word. You want to fully study the word. You want to fully synthesize the word, theologize the word. I know what you're saying. And that's what he's saying here is that in carrying out the ministry of the Word, notice this focus, the mystery which has been hidden from ages past and generations, you need to know something about biblical theology. If you've been in our church for any length of time or you've been listening to Sunday schools for any length of time, we did a whole study on biblical theology. What is biblical theology? It is the unfolding of God's story throughout all of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation and at the apex of that theology is Jesus Christ. So you must you must be able to go back into past epics of the Bible and and from those epics, you must be able to bring it home to Jesus Christ. In other words, the pastor has to be able to tie the Bible together. It's not a disjointed, dislocated, discombobulated revelation. It is one wondrous story. Just like we've seen. The other thing is that we have to teach Christology. Did you catch that? He says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, and what is this mystery that has been now revealed to the Gentiles? It is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is the essence of this of the word and the ministry of the word, what is the, what is the essence of that all about? It is in order to illustrate to you as the church where you are and who you are by virtue of your union with Christ. It is to show you the pastor exists to labor to show you who you are in Christ. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. It's all captured in these words. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, in this life, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's it. Galatians 2.20 That's your identity. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the pastor exists for this ultimate purpose to labor to illustrate what your life looks like in in connection, or we can even say by virtue of the fact that you are in union with Jesus Christ. 
If you're in union with Jesus Christ, what should your life look like? We've been going through Ephesians and practical theology in Sunday school. And we remember, we move from the indicative to the imperative. From the reality to what ought to be. From what is to what ought to be. And one thing that Ephesians does is that it shows us very plainly in Ephesians chapter 1 who we are in Christ. Chosen in Christ, predestined in Christ, adopted in Christ. We have been, we have been redeemed in Christ. We have been, you know, we have been sealed in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Isn't there a song? In Christ alone. That's what we're saying. And that's why, um, that's why the apostle Paul says that this is what he wanted to make known. And this is all for your building up, by the way. This is all for you to be built up. To be edified, to be encouraged. If you're coming to Heritage Grace and you're hearing the preaching and you're being, and you're being taught theology and you're among the fellowship and you're, you're sitting in worship, but you are not benefiting, look for another church. It's that simple. You should be going to a church where the pastoral ministry is actually beneficial. Uh, I've told you, I think, this story before, but I, for some reason, I don't know, these people are drawn to me. I've gone to several conferences where people come up to me, sometimes emotional. Once, a couple in tears were thinking about leaving our church. Here's our reasons, X, Y, and Z. And I always, I will always ask them the same thing. Has it gotten to the point where you are leaving more bitter than blessed? If you're leaving your own church more bitter than you are blessed, you're in trouble. It's time to go. Because you're not useful anymore. Because that's not what church is for. And if a pastor is doing what he's supposed to do, he's supposed to be doing this, look at the word, for your benefit. In other words, verse 25, you should be profiting spiritually. If you are not profiting spiritually, one of two things has happened. Either the pastoral ministry you're under is no good, number one, or there's something wrong with the receptacle, your heart. Either you're not receiving the Word, you're not applying the Word, you're not obeying the Word, you're not trying to uh, uh, try to benefit from the Word. Something is wrong. But this is what this is all about. This is why pastors are to be saturated in the Bible. They're to be saturated in the Bible because they're called to be totally devoted. They're to be saturated in the Bible because we are called to teach theology, namely biblical theology and Christology. And of course, it's a lot further than that. It's everything. It's You know the theologies. It's systematic theology. It's historical theology. It's exegetical theology. All of the theologies, but brothers and sisters, don't you agree that all the theology in the world is no good if it's not getting down into your heart and soul and changing the way you live? So that practical theology is of eminent importance. Eminent importance. And Christ is at the very center of that. John Eady is a Puritan commentator that says, Christ is the one and undivided object of our proclamation. That's exactly right. He is it. He's the sum of it all. Now, let's look at the last thing here, which is called to suffer, called to Scripture, called to sanctify. Look at verse 28. We proclaim him. That, that is one propositional truth. That is a clause. That is a contained statement. That is one big idea. And then from there, everything is modified, right? He says, we could even say, by means of. By means of admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We proclaim Him. Chris Matthews and I, for the longest time, uh, when he was still pastor here, we would remind the church over and over again that our church is Christ-centered. That the center of our church is Christ. 
um, that we understand there's lots of things blowing through the church at times. There's this movement and that movement. There's this emphasis and that emphasis. But for our church, as far as, as long as I'm allowed to be a pastor here, as, for our church, we are always going to be Christocentric. Uh, it's Him. The minute you get away from Him, you are getting away from the glory of it all. It's Him. We are, we, we are called to proclaim Him. And that by proclaiming Him, by means of teaching, by means of, by means of proclaiming, by means of wisdom, by means of presenting everyone complete, guess what should happen? Your life should change. You're, you, you should become a solid Christian. Look at chapter 2 of Colossians. Just read down with me his own exposition of his own statements. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Oh, I might be tempted to preach this book next. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ Himself. I mean, literally, it's literally God's mystery and everything else is not there. It's just God's mystery, Christ. That's the way that Paul phrased it. We helped Him out. (laughs) Verse 3, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. It's not found in this world. It's not found in the culture. It's not found in Oprah. I don't even know. Is she still on television? Anyway. It's not found in popular cultural opinion. It's not found in politics. It's not found in the soap operas. It's not found on Sports Center. It's not found anywhere other than Christ. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now here's what I'm getting to. Verse 4 and 5. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. That's him speaking of based on false human reason. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing, listen now, to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ so what is the pastoral ministry all about? Why is it to sanctify? Because it ought to produce good discipline in, in, in your life. This is the language of training. Uh, you, you're to be uh, trained like an athlete, uh, uh, biblically speaking, spiritually speaking. You are to have a fortitude about yourself. Dads know what to do in the home as a spiritual leader. Moms know what they're supposed to be doing in their home with their kids. There's a, there's a, a solid, a, a, a Christian worldview that begins to take shape and it affects every aspect of your life. You know what you're doing with your finances as a Christian. You are not excessive. You are not greedy. You are not idolatrous. You're not covetousness. You're not materialistic. But instead, Christianity begins to govern everything in your life. What does Peter say? He has given us everything that pertains to, 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 to life. Everything that pertains to life and godliness. Everything that pertains to our life is informed by the teaching of the Bible. Now back up really quick. Um, back to verse... 28. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man. Notice the distribution there. It is exhaustive. It is not discriminatory. It is for every person. Every man, woman, and child in the church should fall under the, under the pedagogy of the church, under the teaching, the preaching of the church. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Now, this is a fine and delicate balance that Paul is striking here. On the one hand, he uses didaskalos, which he's saying he is 
teaching. There's a, there's this propositional truth that's being unleashed. There's doctrine. There's, there's catechizing, if you would, right? There's theology. There's grammar. There's Greek grammar. There's uh, exegesis, exposition. There's all of that. But then he says, with all wisdom. The reason why all wisdom is very important, guys, is because biblically speaking, the concept of wisdom in the Bible When you think of wisdom in the Bible, you should be thinking wisdom literature in the Bible. So, for example, the Proverbs. In the Bible and in the biblical worldview, wisdom is so that you know how to live in the real world. So it's not just that we sit around a table and and, and, and sort of speculate about abstract theology so that we can get intellectually tickled or something. No, no, no. It's all for application. Everything is so that it makes us a better Christian uh, in the marriage, in the home, with the kids, at work, in our vocations. It's like more, you know, Martin Lloyd Jones once was, you know, approached by somebody who said, like, "Make it more practical." <laughs> I had somebody tell me that today. I was preaching earlier at a church, um, as we mentioned. I can't believe I already preached this sermon, but anyway, it's my second sermon of the day. Um, a lady came up to me and asked me to be more practical. I said, amen, sister, I will try. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's not that we do not take up practical subjects, marriage, finances, family, whatever. We do take them up, but brothers and sisters, Lloyd-Jones says, we take them all the way up. We take them all the way up. And we take them up to the throne of God and we lay them bare as to their Godwardness or godlessness. I love that. This is what Paul means by teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. One thing about Paul's ministry that is concurrent in all of his writings that we know is that the Apostle Paul labored under the knowledge of the greatest size. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles then to Second Corinthians um, Chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just so you can see this. You ever read the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, his epistles? You ever read where Paul talks about before God, right? Before God this, before God that. When he's talking like that, he's speaking of his knowledge of his eschatological obligations, eschatology, meaning future, meaning judgment, meaning when you're dead and you need to face God. And he talks about that right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Listen to what he says. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, Uh, Notice verse um, 8 here. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present or to be home with the Lord. So no soul sleep of any kind. It's absent from your body, present from the Lord. Isn't it amazing that it will take place that quick? Absent from your body, present with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as as our ambition the knowledge of that, folks, the knowledge of being present with the Lord, home with the Lord. This is our ultimate ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear, not just pastors, all of us before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The Apostle Paul, listen, he was not afraid to say to himself, you're going to face God. You're going to give an account. As much as we do that in evangelism, right? You're going to give an account one day, every word, everything you've ever done. Paul turns that around on himself and he says, we all have to face Christ on the day of judgment. We all have to stand before him to give an account. Really remarkable. Really, really remarkable stuff. Jonathan Edwards, when he was kicked out of his church, uh, he wrote a farewell sermon in which he said, we are leaving, but really it's just, I guess I'll paraphrase for you, but he's saying it's, it's, it's really just sort of a, of a short break. We're going to reunite here real soon. 
And he was talking about the day of judgment. He's saying, we'll come together again. That's why when I'm usually witnessing to people on the streets, I'll tell them, if your eyes meet my eyes on the day of judgment, I'm free of your blood because I've told you the way to eternal life. But the greatest size, this idea that everything that Paul did in pastoral ministry, he wanted to be well-pleasing to him because he knew that he had to give an account And you see this eschatology right here. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now this is a hotly debated phrase here. What does it mean to be complete in Christ? Um, I think what it means simply is that it refers to every man being spiritually mature. That every man has been equipped, mature. That he's been, you know, the word here, teleao, just means to bring to its goal. And, and, and so the, the whole process of preaching and teaching is to bring you to your goal, your God-given goal, which is to be fully complete in Him. He is your satisfaction. We labor to show that to people, that we, brothers and sisters, we are sufficient in Him. We are satisfied in Him. Once again, look, Chapter 2, verse 9. For in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily, in bodily form, and in Him, you have been made complete. So you're complete, past tense, through conversion. What Paul is talking about here is that now, His goal is to complete us through sanctification as we grow under the Word of God Brothers and sisters, I just, I want to end with this, and that is to remind us that the primary means of grace for you and I to grow, to, to mature as Christians is the ministry of the Word of God. We can never ever think that we need to get creative in Christianity. Oh, if we just had this program, if we just did, you know, the devotion that these people are doing, Yes, that's fine. But the question we must always ask is, is it centered in the Word of God? Is it rooted in Scripture? Does it come from the Bible? Uh, Other than that, dear friends, I don't want it. I get all this stuff in the mail because I'm a pastor. I get all this stuff in the mail from religious organizations. Hey, this is how you can grow your church. Hey, try this new program out at church. Hey, do this. And I look through the curriculum. It's like, this is devoid of theology. It's devoid of doctrine. It's devoid. It's great pictures. Oh, they're even doing apps and you know all this stuff. Just give me the Bible. You want to be, you want to be mature. You want to grow. Look at Psalm one. You don't listen to the counsel of the ungodly. Number one, get that out of the way. Number two, if you want to be a righteous man. You are firmly rooted and grounded by the rivers of water. You meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, and then you will be complete. The Word of God is never to be underestimated in our church. What did Jesus tell the apostles as He commissions them pastorally? John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them in, the, in your truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them in this. Teach them this. Show them this so that they will mature. Did you catch that? Colossians chapter 2, two things. Uh, discernment and discipline. Number one, discernment. You will not be deluded by any persuasive argument, false argument, of course. You will not be cheated Through philosophy, look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of man and not, he says, according to the traditions of man, sorry, according to the elementary principles of the world, um, that's stokeion, that Greek word literally means the worthless teachings of man-made religion. That's what it's saying. Rather than according to Christ. Finally, Paul's emphasis here in pastoral ministry is that this is where he spends his energy. You see this? Look at verse 29. For this purpose, I labor. 
striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Don't busy yourself as a pastor being the CEO of a company. Coming up with a strategy like for consumerism. If you're going to bog yourself down with work, let it be biblical work, Bible work, preaching work, teaching work, theology work. This is what we're called to. And sadly today, what many pastors think they ought to be doing is all about personality. Try to become a magnetic person. You know, reach out to people that are entrepreneurial in their spirit. I went to a conference. Is that what one of these pastors said? He said, surround yourself with entrepreneurial people. What? How about the last and the least? How about do what Jesus says? Go out to the highways and byways and compel people to come in. How about James, how about associate with the lowly? How about James chapter two? Don't esteem rich people. Where is the spirit of Christ in that? And this is a, I don't want to drop any names, but you know what I'm saying. Bible. I came back from the Shepherds Conference to tell you, Bible, Bible, Bible. Father, minimize our distractions, Lord, I pray. Maximize our effectiveness in Your Word. Minimize our own fickle, wayward minds that are so quickly removed from meditation. And help us to meditate on the implanted Word of God which is able to save our souls. I trust, Lord, that Your Spirit will be pleased to blow upon the Scriptures and to give us life. Reminiscent, Lord, of what Jesus said in Revelation 3, be zealous. Give us a heart, O God. Give us zeal. Help us to keep fresh love for Jesus alive in our hearts. Forgive us for any lukewarmness, laziness, spiritual apathy, indifference. Rid us of those things and fill our hearts with wonder, with joy, with affection, with love. Because, as Peter says, though you do not see Him now, you love Him and you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We need all of that and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.